Well, good morning, everybody. Good morning. And welcome to New Day Church. If you're new with us today, my name is Andrew, and it is my great privilege to serve as the executive pastor of our church. I don't have as strong of a hairline as Mike, our lead pastor, <laughs> nor as full of a beard, but they still let me preach every now and then, which I appreciate, and I do count it quite a privilege. So thank you for being with us today. And we're doing the same thing. We're taking on a portion of scripture. We call it a pericope. It's a fancy way to talk about just a portion, a chunk of scripture. And we're gonna look at that scripture and we're gonna understand the context of it and apply it to our lives today. And I'm so glad that you've, like I said, joined us to be a part of that. The text today, even if you're new, it's okay. We kind of do this each week at a time. You can always catch up online to our previous sermons, which is great, but you don't need to have done that to be a part of today's message. It can stand alone on itself. And so that's always great. And so what I want you to do is just open up your Bible if you have one with you. Don't worry if you don't. The text will come up on the screen. But the text today that we're covering is actually Matthew chapter 12, verses 22 to 32 where Matthew, the writer, records Jesus confronting the unforgivable. If you were here last week, I was the closing MC, and I told you, hey, that's coming. And probably some of you sweat more than you should have last week. It probably wasn't very kind of me to do that and give you anxiety, so I'm sorry if you did. You're probably trying to live right, just not sure. Like, man, I don't know. I don't want to commit this thing. So I hope I didn't give you too much stress this week. But here's what we've been learning. We've learned again, even last week, with Mike's message, that Matthew wrote his gospel to proclaim Jesus of Nazareth as the great savior king that God promised to send into the world. And this is actually great news. Uh, some of you here today, you know how great this news is because you've accepted that reality in your own life. You've accepted Jesus as that savior king. For the crowds, even of the time that this was written, I mean, 2,000 plus years ago, it was great news for so many when Jesus showed up on the scene, healed people of their infirmities. Uh, took care of their issues, uh, comforted them in a way they'd never been comforted before, and then provided salvation to them as they placed their faith in him. I mean, it's just amazing. Uh, wonderful news. It's amazing news, unless you're a Pharisee. And if you're new to the Bible, a Pharisee is a religious leader of the day. And there were religious status quos that when Jesus showed up on the scene, he's actually flipping those upside down. And so what I'm going to call today is the religious establishment. That would be the Pharisees. They are the kings of their current religious establishment. They're a big deal in the religious circles. And then you've got this guy, Jesus, and all the crowds want to hang out with him. They want to know what this Jesus of Nazareth is up to. They're much more concerned with Jesus than they were of their previous teachers and scribes, the Pharisees. And so when Jesus shows up, it disrupts this establishment for these Pharisees that were the rulers of it. And guess what? You shouldn't be surprised by this. It made them really mad. It got those Pharisees really angry. So in our text today, we're going to see an eruption of that anger, and Jesus will actually confront the sin that is behind that eruption of anger that we'll see with the Pharisees. And he's actually going to give it a name. I usually like to tease things out a little bit, but I'm going to just cut right to the chase today. Here's the name that Jesus gives to this sin that's behind the eruption of anger. It's called the blasphemy against the spirit. You want to know the unforgivable sin? It's the blasphemy against the spirit. So I grew up in church. Uh, again, if you're new to me, new to New Day, new to Andrew Charco, I grew up in church. And when I was very young, I heard about this thing called the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. I actually grew up in a Pentecostal church. So people can get a little wild in a Pentecostal church. And when you're young like me, like an eight-year-old boy, let's say, growing up in a Pentecostal church, well, sometimes you see some things in church that make you want to laugh. 
Now, you shouldn't laugh, <laughs> especially if your mom's right next to you. But sometimes something will just go down in a Pentecostal service, and when you're eight years old, you just don't really know any better, and you're like, what is happening right now? <laughs> Have you ever been in a situation where you want to laugh, but you know you're not supposed to laugh? Yeah. yeah. You've seen newscasters go through this, where they're like doing the news, and then all of a sudden something strikes them funny, and it's kind of a serious story, and it's really awkward, and they can't help it. And then what happens? They're just trying to hold it in as best they can. So this is me as eight-year-old Andrew in a Pentecostal service. I got kind of like clinched up, and you're like, oh, don't laugh, and then you can't help it, and your shoulders start to shake. <laughs> Have you ever been there? And then I was always sitting next to my cousin, who makes me laugh anyway. I don't know why our parents let us sit next to each other, but we're sitting next to each other, and then we're seeing stuff go down in a Pentecostal church, and I start laughing, and then he starts laughing, and the shoulders start shaking. Now, I could tell you all of my crazy experiences, but I don't have enough time in the sermon, so I'm just going to pick one. So as an eight-year-old boy, I always saw this woman, and to an eight-year-old boy, I think she looked like she was 112 years old to me in our, in our church. <laughs> And I think she made her own dresses. I'm not going to lie. I just, I just think that. I just feel that very strongly, that she made her own attire. And at certain points in the service, she never kind of knew when it was going to go down, but at a certain point, she would be in her homemade dress, 112 years old. She'd have her nylons on, and she'd kick off those church shoes for a second. And I don't know what would come over her, but every now and then, she'd just kind of get out into the aisle, and she'd just start to get jiggy with it a little bit. <laughs> and then I'm, I'm eight, and I'm seeing this go down. And I'm like, I don't think it's fair that you don't want me to laugh. You know, I just don't feel like that's fair. And then to top it all off, like she could crochet. So she'd crochet her own doilies and then she'd place them on top of her beautiful little white hair at the top there. And so now I'm seeing this with my cousin and we're watching this go down. And then every now and then she'd start saying some things and it just didn't sound like English to us. Now, don't get nervous. People are getting nervous already in the room. Don't get nervous. It's not a message about like charismatic churches and the gifts of the spirit or anything like that. I just want you to get the essence of being an eight-year-old boy in church with your cousin, trying hard not to laugh, and then watching some of this kind of stuff that plays out in Pentecostal churches sometimes unfold. It was hard to keep it in. So here's what also would happen. Because I was part of a good church, and I loved my church, and they would preach the Bible in that church. And all of a sudden, every time and then, you know, you'd have a preacher come up and he would preach on the blasphemy against the Spirit. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And I don't know if the preacher preached it wrong or if I just heard it wrong. I don't know if I, the preacher got the context wrong or if it was just that I was eight and this is just kind of the way. So I'm going to give the preacher the benefit of the doubt because I love preachers, so I'm just going to let him. He probably did the right thing. But as an eight-year-old boy, here's what I heard. You want to know what I thought the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit was? When you laugh at somebody who kind of acts out in the Spirit. So the first time I ever hear this message about the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, and it's an unforgivable sin, I'm sitting there with my cousin, we're laughing about something we had just seen, the preacher says that, and then we go, what? <laughs> All of a sudden you're crying, laughing, and now you're crying real tears because you think you're going to hell. I'm going to hell now? Oh no, I was, we were just having a good time, and now we're going, oh no. You know, you're scared. Now, some of you didn't grow up in church and you're thinking, I'm glad I didn't grow up in church, actually. This was good for me. But for those of us that grew up in certain churches, we have some things to overcome, and that's okay. But the bottom line is, I was afraid. I had concerned myself that, oh, no, I've committed the unforgivable sin, and I'm in deep trouble. Welcome to the message today, everybody. <laughs> I have good news for any Pentecostal eight-year-old boys in the house with me today. Laughing at somebody in church that is doing something that looks very strange and silly to you is not blasphemy against the Spirit. I still don't recommend it. I just want to say that out loud. I still don't recommend doing it, but 
it's definitely not blasphemy against the Spirit. Jesus does say that blasphemy against the Spirit is unforgivable. In fact, he confronts it in this section of Scripture. So I want to get to what it really is so that we can figure that out together. But we can't actually do it until we understand the entire section of Scripture in context. So I want to break it down together today. And the way I want to do it is in four parts. And I want to show you how Jesus confronts this unforgivable sin called the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. So here's your first fill in the blank. I'd like to just invite you to join me by filling in the blanks. I think it's helpful. You don't have to, but if you'd like to, here's your first fill in the blank. It's the catalyst. Jesus confronts the unforgivable. And first, there's a catalyst. What I want to do is start with the act, the catalyst that brings out the unforgivable. And the act actually is this unbelievably amazing supernatural act where Jesus heals a demon-oppressed, blind, and mute man. Take a look at verses 22 to 23. We're going to take each section at a time and get through the whole section that way. Matthew chapter 12, verses 22 to 23. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, to Jesus. And he, Jesus, healed him so that the man now spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said this, can this be the son of David? This Jesus of Nazareth, could it really be true that he's the Messiah? See, as was often true, Jesus healed somebody, took an, uh, an issue in their life, something that had plagued them for so long, and then just with a spoken word, immediately it's, it's gone. He'd been doing this day after day after day, and crowds had been growing and growing and growing, and so much evidence was behind him at this point. But for some reason, in this particular healing, the crowd is like, I mean, read that word amazed in your Bible, it means like, whoa. Like they were like blown away by this one. This one just like knocked them off their feet. I mean, it was epic. And so the crowd's now looking and saying, isn't that Jesus of Nazareth over there? Isn't that the carpenter's son? Could it be true that he is the son of David? When they say son of David, that is just the most common messianic title of the day. So these people have been following Jesus. They've been hearing about things. They've seen some themselves. And then they see this amazing miracle. And they say, could it be true? But I want you to understand something because it's important for the context today. They didn't believe in that moment. What was true about the crowd is that they're not completely certain, and there's a reason. They have a preconceived idea about what the Messiah should look like. You know this, perception's reality. And whether it was biblical or not, they perceived that the Messiah was going to be someone who came in and was going to be like a political giant. It was going to be somebody with some esteem, with a background, and they were going to just bring political change like pretty quickly right away and overthrow Rome. And they were looking forward to that. Jesus didn't come politically like that. And he came from Nazareth. He, he was of, of small means. And so now they're looking at that and thinking like, I thought it was going to be like a political uprising. This is Jesus. He, he's, there's nothing really super special about him in the flesh. What's going on? But at the same time, they can't deny what they've seen. Miracle after miracle after miracle. And then today, this amazing miracle of the demon-oppressed person and now they're saying, and they're doing, could it be? You know, your dog does this when it's confused, and it just does one of these, and we do it too. And you squint a little bit, and you're like, could, could it really be true? 
the crowd is seeking. And they're starting to see so much evidence point towards Jesus truly being the son of David, that true promised Messiah, the savior king. And it's beginning to become undeniable. This is a very logical pathway where the crowd's thinking is going. It's very logical, and it's a logical explanation, which we usually like. But if you're the leaders of the current religious establishment, you're not going to want to ascribe any logic or truth or reasoning to what you've been seeing. If you're a Pharisee, you're desperately looking for another option. It can't be Jesus that's the Messiah. You want another option, and the next option is actually your next fill in the blank today. The Pharisees take this option. It's called the crazy. The, the Pharisees take the, the crazy option. Take a look at how the Pharisees decide to respond in verse 24. They saw the same miracle that the crowd saw. The crowd's amazed, and they're thinking, could it be true? Is Jesus really the Messiah? Is it possible that we are living in the day and age where the Messiah has come to earth? And here's what the Pharisees say, Matthew chapter 12, verse 24. But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it's only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Your version might say Beelzebub, Lord of the flies, Lord of the dung is the meaning. It was the ascription, it was the title for Satan of the day. So they're saying, Jesus is, yeah, he's doing some cool stuff. Yeah, yeah, that was supernatural, but it, Satan, that's the power behind him. Imagine the, the, the Pharisees, they're saying, we just saw this. It's undeniable the good that Jesus did today and what he's been doing up to this point. We've been following long enough to see it. Uh, if people start to get this, hmm, I wonder, and they start to say, it is him. He is here. The Messiah has arrived. They know that their whole world is going to get flipped upside down. No longer are they the big dogs in town. No longer do they get to just lord over people, their religious requirements, and walk around in their flowing robes and have everybody address them as like they were kings. They lived a wonderful life in this environment and in this culture, and they could see the threat that Jesus posed to them, and they didn't want to give that up. There was something so uh, important to them something that they desired to hang on to so much in their own life and in their own livelihood and their experience that they would do anything, something even crazy, by saying that Jesus is doing all of these miraculous things, casting out demons with Satan's power, who the demons work for. It's a crazy option, as we'll see in just a moment, but crazy is the only option when you don't take the option of logic and truth. You have to pick crazy, and in this case, Satan is the only crazy option that the Pharisees can find in order to make some kind of claim about how Jesus is doing these healings and these exorcisms. So there's a catalyst, this amazing miracle, and then that produces crazy in these Pharisees who don't want Jesus to threaten their power. And that leads us to what Jesus decides to do next. And Jesus always does this, by the way, when there's crazy. Jesus always brings the clarity. And that's your next fill in the blank. Anytime there's crazy, Jesus has such a beautiful way of bringing clarity. This is actually the longest section of the scripture we'll cover today, so I want you to really focus in here. 
if you can. It's going to take up the screen, so just follow along closely. Matthew chapter 12, verse 25, we'll start with. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, because that's what you're saying, you crazy Pharisees, he is divided against himself. How could his kingdom stand if that were true? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? That is your disciples, Pharisees. Therefore, they will be your judges. That is your sons, your disciples, Pharisees. They're actually going to be your judges. Verse 28. But if it's by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you today. And Jesus gives one more illustration, and he says, Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. The scriptures say that Jesus knew their thoughts, whether supernaturally or he just knew their thoughts like you and I do. When you see somebody rolling their eyes at you, whispering, and you just know what they're up to. And he's saying, I know the thoughts of you Pharisees. And he's confronting them in their thoughts where he's saying, you're telling the people and thinking amongst yourselves that this is your best option. Say that Satan is casting out himself and his own demons. That's ridiculous. And what Jesus does is use an illustration that actually should resonate with every single one of us. It's that any kingdom divided against itself is of course going to crumble. One of my favorite parts about being in New Day and a part of New Day Church is that we are very unified. We have a unified mission, vision, strategy, and we're so thankful that so many of you have come alongside that. And we're, we're chasing after God together. We're running after Jesus. We're trying to let people know about the salvation that is found in Christ. We want to make disciples together. And we're so unified, it's just such a treasure to be a part of a church like that. But I know some of you, you've been part of a church that that was not true. There was a pastor, but then there was another sect of people that didn't like that pastor. And then there became a board member that had some power. And there was a group that liked his ideas, but they didn't like this guy's over here. And then what happened? All of a sudden, that church started to divide. And it doesn't always happen overnight, but give it enough time. And a kingdom divided against itself, it always falls. There's a church split. It's horrible. You hate to see things like that, but you've seen it in companies where there's gossip is the culture of that company. And no one likes the boss or the management. And all of a sudden, there's just division, and that company can't last very long. My heart goes out to so many of you, you actually have family life like this, where you have siblings that are backbiting, that are gossiping, that are saying the wrong things about you. And you're trying to figure this out, but your family feels so divided, and you know that it feels like it's just hanging by a thread. Jesus says, everyone knows what that's like. If there's a kingdom divided against itself, it always will crumble. Pharisees, you saying that Satan casting out himself would make sense, it makes no sense. Maybe Satan would try it for a one-off to get you off the scent, but I've been doing miracle after miracle, day after day. I've been doing the miracles that the Messiah would do, and I am freeing people that were captive to Satan. And the pain that the prince of this earth, Satan, wants to bring into people's lives, and they've been so tormented, and just by a mention of my name, by the power of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, I can free them. See, if Satan was doing that, He's destroying himself, but it's not Satan that's at work. 
Jesus says, don't get this mixed up. And before he gives them the final result of what the power is, the spirit of God, he actually, I love this about Jesus, he goes toe-to-toe with the religious establishment. And Jesus, he hates it when someone's saying, I speak for God, and they don't speak properly for God. And if you're gonna get Jesus mad, that's how you get Jesus mad. You say you're speaking for God, and you're messing it all up. So he goes right at him, and he says, your sons will bear witness. What he's saying is, your disciples actually cast out demons. The Pharisees had their own students, and they would cast out demons, but the way that they would do it, it actually looked like a movie. And there'd be smoke, and there'd be all kinds of just, just pomp and circumstance around it. And it was this big production, and then they, they would cast demons. So he would say, so how do you do it? How do your boys do it? How do your disciples cast them out? And now think about it. The Pharisees are like, well, I don't know what to say. I can't say by Satan, because <laughs> now we look just like what we're accusing Jesus of doing. But I also can't say it's by God that our disciples cast them out. Because now I'm saying that Jesus is doing what we do. And so now I'm affirming Jesus in his ministry. And thankfully for the Pharisees, it's more of a rhetorical question. And he doesn't make them actually answer. Because there was no great answer. It was checkmate in that moment for them. But Jesus doesn't give them a chance to answer because everybody knows that it was checkmate. And so what Jesus decides to do instead is he goes to verse 28, and I've got to read it to you one more time because there's just so much certainty and clarity here. Take a look at verse 28 again. Jesus says, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you, and you're looking at it. Jesus doesn't mince any words. As bold as maybe we've ever seen Jesus right here in this moment, Matthew chapter 12, verse 28, Jesus is not mincing words. I am he. Jesus is saying there's really one explanation for what you're seeing today, and any literate Jew, like a Pharisee, would know that Jesus truly is the Messiah. There's just too much evidence. And they know it's a threat. They know it's a problem. They know he's doing it by the Spirit of God and that there is good behind what Jesus is doing, yet they're not willing to accept it. You see, the dawning of God's kingship, which should be a cause for joy for anybody who sees it, and it has been for so many of us in this room, when you meet Jesus, for the Pharisees, it was too much of a threat. They had to oppose him. Jesus goes on into verse 29 just to explain it. Because this can be confusing too in the scriptures when he mentions the strong man. The strong man actually represents Satan as well. And what Jesus is saying is that if Satan's the strong man, and if you're going to kick anything out of his house, or take anything from his house, that is, if you're going to be able to take a demon out of somebody, first you'd have to get to that strong man, Satan himself, and tie him up. Satan himself is not kicking himself out. That's ridiculous. That's crazy. Jesus says, the only way you can actually do it is if you have somebody stronger than the strong man. Jesus says there's a prince of this earth called Beelzebul, Satan. But he's saying here, I'm stronger than him. Yeah, there's a prince, but guess what? There's a king in town. King Jesus, Savior King, Son of David, the Messiah. The only way demons are leaving is if there's a stronger king than the prince of this world. And Jesus says, I'm that guy. It's so crystal clear. The real supernatural source of the power of Jesus, it's not Satan. The source is the power of the real and undeniable spirit of God. Jesus doesn't mince words here. He brings absolute clarity. 
And he's been so clear that he's now willing to turn the guns on the Pharisees. He's been so crystal clear and so direct, especially in verse 28, that he's now willing to turn those guns. So take a look. This is number four. It's your next fill in the blank. He's now ready to condemn. It's the condemnation. It's the condemnation. Let's read our final verses today together. And in these final two verses, we find the unforgivable sin. I know you've been waiting for it. And Jesus is prepared to confront it. And he's about to do it. Take a look. Matthew chapter 12, verse 31. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. But the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, that's Jesus himself, will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. These may be two of the most misinterpreted and misunderstood verses in the Bible. And honestly, I get it. <laughs> I'm an ordained minister, and it confused me. And you say, whose fault is that? I think it might be Jesus, honestly. Take a look at verse 31. I don't feel allowed to say that. I don't think that's the unforgivable sin, so I think I'm okay. But Jesus, you just said, look at verse 31. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. So I know Jesus just said every sin, every blasphemy. And then I know the rest of the scriptures too. Not by heart, but I've studied them for many years. And I know that this depth of God's forgiveness is so deep. The width of a forgiving, loving God is so, so wide. You can try to run from the forgiveness of God and it will chase you down. There is just something magnificent if you read the scriptures in total about God's great love for his people and how desperately he wants to forgive you of anything you've ever done. Even if you're ashamed to even think it right now that I'm saying it out loud. God wants to chase you and forgive you. So when you know that, you start to think, Everything is forgivable, and then you see these words. But the blasphemy against the Spirit is unforgivable. I want you to know that blasphemy, generally speaking here, is to speak against somebody. Not to speak in full favor of them, speak against them. And so in the general terms where Jesus says this can be forgiven, I want to just take you back for just a second. Can you go back to when the crowd was amazed for a minute? Do you remember when Jesus does the miracle? It's the catalyst. And what does the crowd do? They're amazed, but they're not still sure. They're still seeking, but they want to know the truth. They desire it, but they're just not sure because they're looking over there at Jesus of Nazareth. That's the carpenter's son. They still see Jesus very much in the human form, very much a man that's walking the earth alongside them. What makes him any different than me other than he's doing all these miracles, other than all this amazing stuff that follows him, and other than this feeling that I get when I'm in his presence? but they're still not sure. So they still see him as a man, and in a sense, there's a blasphemy there. There's a speaking against, actually, because he isn't just a man. He's fully man and he's fully God. So they're seeing him, but they're still, they just don't have that undeniable truth yet. They're not quite sure yet. They're still investigating, and Jesus says there's forgiveness for blasphemy like that. There's full, deep, and wide forgiveness for that. It's okay to be seeking the truth and running after it. And we know this because many of those who denied and rejected Christ during his earthly ministry later saw the truth and they asked for forgiveness. You want to know the most famous example? It's Paul. Paul, who wrote the vast majority of the New Testament, was a persecutor of Christians. He had them killed. 
But what do we know about Paul? For those of you that know your Bible, he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, face to face. And when Paul knew the truth, when Paul knew the truth, he said, I don't know what I've been doing. I've been wrong. We know that you can be forgiven. Even someone like Paul can be forgiven. It's possible. But though that forgiveness is plentiful, even for blasphemy, when a person is still seeking and when the evidence might be ambiguous, but the heart might still be open to the truth, there's a blasphemy against the spirit that's impossible to forgive. And my study was difficult and long, but the result is actually very simple, and I don't want you to miss it. You see, blasphemy against the spirit, it's the ultimate rejection of the need for such forgiveness in the first place. I'm going to say it again, because you just can't miss it. Don't be like the eight-year-old me that got it all wrong. Blasphemy against the spirit is the ultimate rejection of the need for the forgiveness that God offers you in the first place. Blasphemy against the Spirit says, I don't need your forgiveness. You can take it. That's not for me. Please don't get it twisted today. It's not that God refuses to forgive. It's that the blasphemer of the Spirit refuses to ask for it. If you get to the point where you're the blasphemer against the Holy Spirit, you'll never say, Lord, forgive me, I was wrong. Lord, forgive me, I have sinned, I've erred. Lord, there's wrong against you, and it's because of things I've done. Please, please, forgive me. See, the blasphemer can't utter those words. It's not somebody who's genuinely seeking God and has made a mess in their life and is still not quite sure but wants to know more. It's not that. No, there's a man or a woman who when they know that they know that they know that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life, yet they refuse to accept it in their own life. And they say, I know I need to repent right now, but I can't. There'll be too much disruption. There'll be too much unearthing of the status quo in my life. I have a sense that Jesus is who he says he is, but I also have a sense that there'll just be a great upending of everything I've known to be true up to this point, and I'm not willing to risk it. So I will say, I don't need, what's sin anyway? I'm not admitting to being a sinner. I won't admit to that. See, when a man or woman reaches that stage, a stage where they refuse to admit that what God calls good is good, and that what God calls sin is sin, and when they refuse to admit that they are a sinner in need of a savior, guess what? Unfortunately for them, they've actually reached a stage where repentance is impossible for them. Because if you can't repent, you cannot be forgiven. Repentance is the only condition of the forgiveness that Christ offers. That's it. So imagine the person that does this, though. Think about it. Think about the pride that has to be there. Oh, there's a holy God, and he sent his one and only son, who was a holy sacrifice, lived a blameless, sinless life, no spot, no wrinkle. A blasphemer says, I'm just like them. Because there could not be any sin in me. There's no way I'm a sinner. I'm just like God. I'm just like Jesus. That's what a blasphemer is truly saying. And I think sometimes they don't even realize it. 
they don't take that train of thought that far, but that's what you're saying. You're saying, oh, I'm just like God and Jesus. That's why I don't need to repent. You see, the blasphemer will never ask for that forgiveness. And the only thing left for someone like that who won't say I'm sorry to God, the only thing left, Jesus said it clear, is condemnation. In this age and in the age to come. So to all the eight-year-old Pentecostal boys in the room, blasphemy against the Spirit is not a little giggle at something you don't fully understand yet. Blasphemy against the Spirit, the unforgivable sin, is the outright refusal to seek the forgiveness that you know that you need for the sins that you know you committed against a God that you know in the depths of your heart and your soul and your mind is a holy God. And he's not just a holy God who's blameless, who's your creator God. He also loved you so much that he sent his one and only son to die in your place for your sins. He loved you in the midst of your sin. You didn't get right first. He loved you from your first breath. He loved you in your mother's womb. He loves you. And to be a blasphemer says, I don't want that forgiveness you have to offer me. I don't need your son. I don't need your sinless, blameless sacrifice. I'm sinless. I'm blameless. That's a blasphemer. So what do we do today? Don't be that guy. Here's your last fill in the blank if you're with me. Be forgivable. Be forgivable. What do forgivable people look like? I'll tell you, but first, I'm going to tell you what they don't look like. Our group's pastor, Michelle, she's the best. She reads my sermons before I ever preach them. That kind of makes me nervous. But she does it so she can create questions for the groups. And after she read my sermon for this week, she sent me an email and it had a YouTube video on it and it was a commercial. And the commercial that she sent me, she said, this reminded me of your message, so I wanted to send it. It's actually a commercial for the Freedom From Religion Foundation. President Ronald Reagan's son, whose name is Ron Reagan, is the guy in the commercial. And he spends the time in that commercial making a pitch to donate in order to keep religion out of government. But the part I want you to see is how he signs off at the very end. He signs off the commercial almost like a news anchor, and this is what he says. Don't miss these words. Ron Reagan, he says, Ron Reagan, lifelong atheist, not afraid of burning in hell. Now, I don't think any Christian should get into the business of calling out somebody who might have blasphemed the Holy Spirit. That's not really your territory. God only knows the heart. So it is not our job to do that. In fact, we just need to kind of worry about that. Remember the whole plank in your own eye message? We can worry about that for ourselves. Here's all I want you to know about that. My heart actually broke when I watched it. And the second thing, though, is perception is reality. So when I watched that and I looked at that guy as he's making that bold statement, he just came across to me so smug and so proud, like he had it all figured out. This silly thing called hell, you guys believe in? This silly thing called sin. And there's just this essence about him that was just the opposite of what I've ever known forgivable people to look like. God knows his heart and I'm praying for him. But the bottom line is, that's not what a forgivable person looks like to me. Here's what forgivable people look like. 
Forgivable people know what is good because they know God's word and they try to do what it says. Remember, a blasphemer calls good evil. And then they say the evil inside them is good. And that mocks God. Ron Reagan says, I'm not afraid to burn in hell. The Bible says when you read the Bible and it's showing us what is good, the Bible says there is a real place called hell where real people go to, that God doesn't want them there. And the only people that end up there are the ones that are refusing to accept the forgiveness that the God who loves you provided in full measure through his son, one and only son, Jesus Christ, who didn't deserve any of it. A forgivable person calls good, good, recognizes their sin, says, God, I don't know what's best for me. I want to know what you say is best for me. And then they run after it. And then they say, God, forgive me for all the ways I've missed it. Help me to know what's good even more. And if there's any evil way in me, shine a light. Because I need to know. Because I want to serve you with everything in me. Because I know I'll never be perfect. But I know that you bought me at such a great price. That's forgivable people. Forgivable people aren't perfect people. Don't get that messed up today. Maybe someone out there, you look at a pastor and you think, man, that guy might be perfect. Maybe nobody thought that, and that's fine. But maybe some of you thought that. <laughs> I just want to assure you today, this guy's not perfect. Meet me in the foyer next week. Talk to me for five minutes, and you will learn real quick there's no perfect bone in this body. Forgivable people aren't perfect. Forgivable people know they mess up. They know that they've missed the mark. Forgivable people like me, I got to say I'm sorry a lot more than I wish I had to say it, but I do. But forgivable people do. They say they're sorry. They say it to their spouse. They say it to their kids. They say it to their family members. They say it to their boss. They say it to their coworkers, and they say it ultimately to God. I'm sorry. I messed up. I don't always have it right. God, if there's any evil pride in me, chop it down. Whatever you got to do to chop me down, I'll take it. But I hope I learn quick. Don't have to humble me so much that I have to finally pay attention. I know I don't have this all figured out. Forgive me. Show me a better way, God. I'm sorry. I messed up. I want to do it right. Don't be like unforgivable people. Because ultimately, and you can't miss this point today, it's the most important point in the entire text. Ultimately, unforgivable people make the most grave mistake that is possible. Unforgivable people. They refuse to ask God to forgive them. Don't ever be an unforgivable person. God is gracious. He's slow to anger. He's rich in mercy. He allows each one of us to take a special journey on our own time. So if you're in this room or you're online and you've been seeking Jesus, but you're just not sure yet, you better keep coming and you better keep seeking. And I'm so glad you are. And God is not here to condemn you today. He's here to say, keep coming. Keep seeking. Yes, you're going down the right road. And if you're somebody like that, but you're not ready today to say Jesus is Lord, that's fine. You take the time that I know your heavenly father has in store for you. And I trust his timeline. We're not talking about that. Keep coming, keep seeking. What I am talking about is this. Somebody in the room, somebody online, you know in the depths of your heart right now. You know in the depths of your soul right now. 
everything in your mind, your body, your soul, the marrow of who you are says Jesus is Lord. He is the son of David. He is the Messiah. I'm positive of it right now and it's freaking you out because you know there'll be a big disruption. You know to accept him as Lord and Savior, it's an upending just like the Pharisees would have to face. You see, you're the establishment for you. You might not be religious establishment, but you establish your rules, your life. And now when Jesus comes to the scene, he says, I want to say. So you're faced with the same dilemma, though you're not a religious leader. And so today, what you say to be a forgivable person is, it's still worth it, Jesus. I know that anything I'm trying to hang on to, it pales in comparison to you and everything you have for my life. How can I, a sinner, ever say, I want to keep this from you, God, when you were willing to give me everything through your son? I can't have that kind of audacity. I have to see my sin. I have to know I've missed the mark. And I have to know that everything is at play in my life. Anything's on the table for God to say, I got to take that. That's the exchange. The exchange is a repentance. It's a forgive me, God. Run into his arms. That's what forgivable people do once they know. Be forgivable today, church. Seek the forgiveness today that you know that you need. I want you to knock at the door of salvation with repentance. Guess what? Jesus always answers that door. So if you want to run to that door today, Will you bow your heads and close your eyes and pray with me? I don't care if you've been a Christian 112 years or you're still a seeker in here. You're my friend if you're seeking. You're the kind of person I want. And everything in between, will you bow your heads and close your eyes? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you right now and we have a simple phrase. Forgive me. Jesus, I don't care if it's a, just a distinguished Christian in the room long-term saint. God, remind them of their sin right now. Not to bash them over the head. You never do that. God, remind them they have to say this today. Forgive me, Lord. I've never been Jesus. I'm not a holy God. I need a Savior. Forgive me. God, for the person right now who I know that you sent here so that you could get to that depth of their soul today because it was about to be truth in their life. And a ton is going to get disrupted for them. But I know, God, that your grace will cover that. And that there's no better treasure in the whole world that they could have found other than Jesus today, who they found. God, I pray that right now in their soul, they would say, forgive me. I'm a sinner. I need a savior. Hell's real. So is heaven. And there's a room prepared for me. If I accept the forgiveness that Jesus alone can offer, I can't get there on my own. I could try as hard as I want. I'll always miss the mark, but there's a Savior because there's a God that loves me. God, give him the strength to pray the prayer today. God, may no one be too far from your forgiveness. May every heart that's willing to cry out, cry out for the beautiful, loving, immaculate name of Jesus. God, and this is, it's in his name. That Savior King, help us always be forgivable. In front of him we pray. In Jesus' name today. Amen. 
Thanks for experiencing this message with us. Do you want more New Day Church in your life? Well, please like and subscribe on YouTube and follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Want to take a next step in your faith? Our Church Center app is the best place to get more connected. So just download the free app on your app store today and be sure to choose New Day Church in Enfield, Connecticut. We are able to offer this sermon and all others like it only because of your faithful financial support. Thank you to all of you who so faithfully give each week. If you feel led to support our ministry financially, just go to our website at newdaychurch.cc forward slash give. Thank you in advance. May God richly bless you and we hope to see you again real soon.